Good morning. It is great to be here with you guys, um, and we are so grateful for the partnership we have in the gospel through your praying, through your giving, and through your going. Um, and just as you pray for us, we pray for you guys. Um, there's a picture, I think it might pop up, of, of a group. It's a church that we planted there in Niger where we live called Eglise Gomni. That just is a, the way we say Grace Church. Uh, and this is a group of first-generation Muslim background believers who come together every Lord's Day. They came together just a few hours ago as most of us were still sleeping. Uh, I tell them all the time that, that they have all kinds of people that are praying for them, people they've never met that are literally their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if you would um, do me the pleasure, I would love to send a greeting back to them. So the way we say hello in Niger is fofo. It's pretty easy. I think even uh, for Kentuckians like myself, we can say fofo, right? So let's, let's practice that, and I'm going to take a video, and I'll send this to them because I think they think I'm lying sometimes. So we're going to go three, two, one, fofo, all right? So three, two, one, fofo. Man, why didn't I record that one? All right, let's do it again. Three, two, one. Oh, Man, that is awesome. Thank you guys so much. That's really all I wanted to do this morning, so thank you. No, <laughs> no uh, it is great to be here with you guys. As Richard said, we've spent the last 16 years of our life in Niger, West Africa. And in Niger, one of the biggest threats that people make to keep the others who are interested in following Christ away from that is to threaten them with this. They'll say, if you become a Christian, no one's going to bury you when you die. That, that might not sound like much of a threat to you, but for those in Niger, it's huge. This is a real barrier. And this was the exact threat that, that Ibrahim and his wife, Hure, heard. There's a picture of Ibrahim that will pop up when they both confess Christ. But to the dismay of the village leaders, even with these threats, Ibrahim and Hure, they remained steadfast in their faith. But then Hure got sick, and she ended up passing away. And it was like the religious leaders in that village finally had the sermon illustration they'd been waiting for. And so she's just passed away. She's still there in the hut. Ibrahim's in his grief, and they gather a crowd around his house. And they begin to taunt him. They begin to mock him. And they say, didn't we tell you this would happen? Look around. No one's here to bury your wife. She's going to rot on the ground like a donkey. If you'll recant your faith, if you'll return to the faith of your fathers, we'll help you bury this dog of a wife of yours. But Ibrahim, this, this poor and weak farmer, he looks right at these most powerful men in his village, and he says, if I have to bury her by myself, I will. But there's no way that I'm turning back on Christ, who's given me life, who's saved me. Just this amazing moment that we saw. But then something even more incredible happened one by one, other believers who were hiding in that crowd, who up until this point had not confessed their faith publicly, just for moments like this one, seeing Ibrahim's boldness, they began to step out and gather around Ibrahim. And then this small group took Hure's body and buried her, all while the crowds mocked and taunted them. And see, something began that day that, that almost no one noticed. While it was clear these men had lost one community, what wasn't so obvious, at least to those standing there that day, was that these men had actually found a new one. And it was a better one. And it was a community that would endure long after all the kingdoms of this world had faded. You see, this little outcast group of some of the poorest people on the planet, they began to come together. 
And the Spirit of God began to take the Word of God and form them into the people of God. They shared boldly, and their faith and their numbers grew. They made disciples who made disciples who ended up planting a church in terrorist-occupied land. See, that's the way the upside-down nature of the kingdom goes. Something that starts out so small, so weak, so seemingly insignificant, like a little seed, like a little bit of yeast, it begins to grow and mature until you look up one day and it's an unstoppable force. This is the way of kingdom advance, and that's what I want to talk about and think about with you this morning. There's a slide, the, the mission of God and the missionary task about what God has invited all of us who, who claim to be his disciples, he's invited all of us into this. And I'd also like to connect a few dots with you this morning to show that how you, being in this room today, that that has its roots all the way back in the beginning. Where we find on the opening pages of scriptures, God creating a good world full of good creations that were designed to, to point to him and to ring out in praise to him. However, as you know, the, the pinnacle of that creation, man and woman, made in his image, invited into his work, enjoying a perfect relationship with him, they refused to join the rest of creation in this chorus of praise and instead believe a satanic lie. And in that one act of rebellion, it throws the entire cosmos into chaos. And yet, even in the midst of that darkness, a ray of hope shines out. Surprisingly, I think, where we expect condemnation, God gives a promise in Genesis 3.15, known as the, the first gospel, that through the offspring of the woman is going to come one who will crush the head of this lying serpent, one who will have the power to undo this curse and to make right all that had been lost. Well, you know how the story goes. The man and woman, they have children, but the serpent's head goes uncrushed. And in fact, the one sin that started this mess, it gets multiplied out exponentially by their offspring until God's righteous wrath falls down and, and all of humanity is swallowed up, literally drowned in a flood of judgment, except for one man, Noah, and his family. But, but even Noah, he is no snake crusher. And from him, this wickedness, it just starts over all again until ultimately all the people of the world come together, uniting, not in worship, but in a construction project of rebellion against God. And so God scatters them. He confuses their language. This, this tragic moment in history, it's the beginning of unique people groups, of distinct languages and cultures. And it's once again in the midst of such darkness that, that hope shines forth. There in Genesis 12 where God calls Abram this pagan nomad with a barren wife. And he says, I am going to create from you and for myself a people. And through them, I'm going to bring about a savior who will bring blessing to all these families. That, that all these diverse peoples who are currently in rebellion, currently doubling down in their wickedness, God is going to rescue them and bring them back and create for himself a new people whom he will dwell with forever. And this plan, it's, it's unbelievable, literally impossible, laughable. But with God, nothing is impossible. And this begins the anticipation for this snake-crushing, all-nations-blessing Savior of the world. And though the storyline narrows its focus onto the people of Israel, it, it's not really about Israel, is it? It's about Israel being a light for and, and a blessing to and, and the conduit through which God will bless 
the nations. We just see God at work in the Old Testament. God working through famine, through jealousy, through captivity, through rebellion, through grumbling, through wandering, through idolatry, through corrupt leaders and division, through pagan kings and through exile, through this and so much more. God is providentially moving all of time, all of history towards his perfect plan. This is not the story of a faithful people, of of heroes and, and saints. It's the story of a faithful God and his covenantal commitment to his mission to bring about his Messiah, a Messiah for all peoples. As you know, the Old Testament ends with, with these promises just left hanging, and that they're going to hang there for 400 years until John the Baptist's voice, like one crying in the desert, breaks through that silence, proclaiming what? Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Like this promised one has finally come. At this point in Jewish history, messianic expectation was at an all-time high. With the pagan Romans defiling everything and and Greek culture threatening to replace their Jewish traditions, the the people of God were ready for a Messiah, for a a David-like warrior riding in on a horse with with a sword in his fist. In other words, they were ready for a roaring lion. They didn't expect a sacrificial lamb. But Jesus didn't come to return Israel to the glory days. He didn't come to restore political power and military might. He came to die and to defeat sin and death through his resurrection so that he might purchase the redemption of people from every tribe and every tongue. Jesus reminds them this was the plan all along. He keeps reminding them of God's global mission, so much bigger than than ethnic Israel. He's reminding them that he has sheep, not of this fold. He reminds them that true Israel isn't about bloodlines and, and family trees, but about faith. After his resurrection, this is what Jesus commissions his disciples to give their lives to, what we just read about. This is why he sends his spirit, so that they might be his witnesses and proclaim his gospel to all nations. He tells them this thing is going to begin in Jerusalem, just what we read. It's not going to stop there. It cannot stop there. It's going to go forth to Judea. It's going to go to Samaria. And then the door is going to open up for the first time in redemptive history to the nations. And the gospel is going to run to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happens. This little group of Jewish believers sitting in a room somewhere in the Middle East, they receive the Holy Spirit. And that ancient promise starts to unfold. The gospel is just unleashed to the nations that despite challenge after challenge, despite persecution and exile, despite being marginalized and cast out, despite all of these things being fed to lions and and burned at stakes, the gospel cannot be stopped. It just keeps going and going. Because what happened in that room in Jerusalem, it begins to spread. It goes to Turkey. Then it goes to Egypt, to Greece, to India, to Spain, to Algeria, to Sri Lanka, to Ireland, to Yemen, to Norway, to Japan, to, to Russia, to China, then to Senegal, to Kenya, to Australia, to North America, just on and on it keeps going until one day it came to you. And you being here this morning... That is part of God accomplishing what he promised he would do in Genesis 12. Do you know what it took to get the gospel from a handful of Greek-speaking Jewish believers in Jerusalem to Bloomfield, Kentucky? Do you know how much sacrifice was made so that you might be here and you might hear and receive the gospel? Do you know the stories of, of martyrdom, of loss and sacrifice, of poverty, of leaving everything behind, of literally laying down their lives so that you might be in this room right now. And so all I'm trying to do with you this morning is fan into flame 
uh, gospel fire in you and hopefully in this church and to plead with you, don't let the gospel mission, this global mission, stop with you. The gospel's gone to Jerusalem. The gospel has gone to Judea. It's gone to Samaria. And we are in the last phase of the mission. And there's still so much work left to do. There's still 7,398 unreached people groups who represent 3.2 billion people who right now have little to no access to the gospel. 3.2 billion men, women, and children, just like Ibrahim and Hure used to be. Who, unless someone goes to them, unless someone shares with them, will go their whole life never meeting a Christian, never hearing the gospel, and then they will die and spend eternity in a real place called hell. This task is not finished. And this isn't about mission trips. This isn't even about getting on a plane and moving your family to a place like Niger. This isn't what some people do over there. This is what all Christians do everywhere, as God has invited all of us into this, so that whatever your capacity, wherever your geography, you have a role to play. And so this morning, I just want to give you three motivations to give yourselves fully to this task. Three encouragements, I hope, to to leverage your life and your resources for what ultimately matters most. The first motivation I would give you is that we have a God who is worthy. That from beginning to end, the Bible shows us that God is motivated by one thing and one thing alone, receiving glory and honor that he is worthy of. In Isaiah, we see God created the world and, and all of humanity for his glory. The psalmist writes that the heavens declare his glory. We see that, that God saving Israel out of is, is Egypt and us out of Adam, that was for his glory, for his namesake. God tells us he will not give his glory to another Jesus writes that, or tells us that even our good deeds are to cause others to give God glory. Everything we do, Paul writes to the Corinthians, we do for the glory of God. In Philippians, we see that even Christ's exaltation, his receiving this name above all names, it ultimately is for the glory of God. And in short, God is motivated by receiving what God alone deserves, namely glory. And this must be. This has to be our motivation as well. Like the reason that we want to give ourselves to this task, this missionary task, it isn't because we feel sorry for unreached peoples. It's just true that that the reality in places where these 3.2 billion people live, in places like Niger, it's terrible. It's places where poverty is rampant, where, where the threat of terrorism is real, where civil war is constant, where corruption is the M.O., where diseases that we don't even think about here, they wipe out entire communities. It's where there's no access to clean water or good education. And while we pray and we work to see healing brought to those situations, our primary motivation, it cannot, it is not one of pity for their physical state. And hear me on this, it isn't even pity for their spiritual state. As odd as that might sound to you, even the lostness Of these 3.2 billion people, while that stirs our heart, it must stir and move our hearts, that isn't our ultimate motivation. Instead, our ultimate motivation is that we long to see God receiving the worship and praise that God alone is worthy of. From every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, the, the peoples who are currently bowing down to lesser and false gods, to idols, to demonic forces, that they would sing and, and be made glad in the God of their salvation. 
that we pray and we, we long for God's glory to cover the earth like waters cover the sea. Because it is His glory that is for their good. Like we want the 135 million sheikh of Bangladesh currently living in darkness. We want them to confess Christ because we want them to taste and see that the Lord is good and worthy to be praised. We want the 56 million house of Nigeria who do not know Christ. We want them to repent and believe in the only name that saves so that they might understand that in his presence there is fullness of joy. His glory is their good. His glory is the only thing that ultimately matters. As John Piper famously said, missions is not the ultimate goal. Worship is. Missions exist, he writes, because worship does not. There is coming a day when missions will come to an end. But worship, you see, that's forever. And so our desire for this to be- is for this to become more and more a reality now on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray for this. We, we give our lives for this. Why? Because God alone is worthy of it. And he alone will be worthy of it forever and ever. There is no God like our God. A second motivation I would give you is that we have a task with which we've been entrusted. Faith comes by hearing, Paul's going to write to the church in Rome. And, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What, what a glorious and amazing truth but within Paul, as you know, he just reverse engineers this thing with some questions. He begins to ask, but, but how can they call on him unless they hear? And the next logical question, and how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can someone preach unless he is sent? And in that series of rhetorical questions, we, we see Paul's point. God has entrusted this missionary task to the local church. It's the local church that is God's chosen instrument, his, his chosen vehicle to spread his glory through the twofold task of showing and sharing the good news of Christ. That in other words, it is the church that is both a visible and a verbal witness to the gospel. Paul's going to write to the Ephesians that it's through the church that it pleased God to make known his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Like, think about that. That's why you're here this morning. I don't know if you realize that when you're getting dressed and coming here this morning But you being here, God, through you, through this local body, he is announcing, he is proclaiming, not just to those in this city, but to those in the heavenly places, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That you being here is saying something incredibly profound. Jesus says it's our unity, it's our sacrificial love for one another, the the putting others first, the serving and forgiving of one another, the, the coming together from people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different cultures, different age brackets, different socioeconomic categories. All these things the world says ought to divide us. Those get torn down by the gospel. And in their place, a new and united people formed in Christ. This is our testimony, not just to Bloomfield, but to the heavenly realm, causing angels to worship and causing demons to tremble, reminding them that their doom is sure as God unites all things under Christ. God has placed you here as a testimony to this community to show them what the kingdom of God looks like. And God has placed you here as a light to this community to share with them what God has done in Christ. Not to give them a a list of rules so that they might behave better, but to point them to a treasure they might behold. God has chosen his church to, to be the vehicle through which God can 
and this gospel can be proclaimed to the nations both near and far with the good news that even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, even when we had hearts of stone, when we were enemies of the cross, even when we were despising the one who created and sustains us, we're by nature children of wrath with, with nothing but sin and shame clinging to a handful of filthy rags, that even when we were in that state of wickedness and that state of rebellion and deadness and being far from God that Jesus has through his blood made us alive. He has brought us near and reconciled us to God. That, that Jesus took our sins upon himself, canceling the record of death that stood against us, setting it aside, nailing it to the cross and declaring once for all, it is finished. That we, unlike every other religion in the world, we don't tell people what they must do. Instead, we herald what Christ has done. This is the news that you've been entrusted with. And I just want to remind you, 2020 did not surprise God. America's rapid descent into sinfulness and darkness, it doesn't have God wringing his hands, pacing back and forth, anxious about what to do next. Instead, in God's divine wisdom and in God's perfect providence, he is determined for this body to be in this place at this season. That they, God has determined for this moment in history for you to show and to share the gospel of his son. It is no accident, no random turn of events that, that you are here right now. God has positioned you for such a time as this. He has entrusted this gospel task with you to, to announce to the world that Jesus is better. Like what a unique opportunity we have in this moment in history to be a testimony that, that we can lose everything and still joyfully sing out on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground, it's sinking sand. So we can, we can only sing that if our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness because it is only Jesus who saves. It is only Jesus who satisfies because it is only Jesus who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It's Christ who is the one is upholding the entire universe by the word of his power. It is Christ that through him and for him all things were created. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the good shepherd. He's the bread of life. He is the living water. He is our great high priest. He is the holy one, the hope of glory. Jesus is the great I am. He is the image of the invisible God, the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is Emmanuel, God with us, and he is coming back for his beloved bride that we might be where he is. And it is this Jesus who calls out to all who are weary, to all who are broken, carrying their shame and their guilt. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. This is the good news we have been entrusted with, that we have the privilege to proclaim to the nations both near and far. And then finally, we have a hope, a third motivation. We have a hope, a future hope that is certain. We see God's faithfulness in history past, but then in Revelation 7-9, we see a glimpse into God's fulfillment in future glory. As there we see nations gathering around the throne of Christ and worshiping him. The, the promises of Genesis 12 perfectly fulfilled in living color. Like that's where all of history is heading. This missionary task, the, the mission of God, it cannot, it will not fail. This is certain. If, if your hope is in this life and things that are going to rust and decay, you will be disappointed. 
that they will fail you. I mean, if we've learned anything these past two and a half years, it's that we are fragile. Like everything, everything can be taken from us in an instant. All the stuff we're tempted to put our hope in, it can vanish in the blink of an eye. But see, it's not so with Christ. He's made a way for us to have a confident joy because we have a future hope that is secure, that is certain. And what I want you to see with that is that that is freeing for right now, for the present. I mean, think about it. We have a a past that's been completely forgiven. We have a, a future that's eternally secure. This frees us up right now to give our lives fully to this missionary task. Like, don't miss out on this because you're distracted by or afraid of losing the things of this world. Don't waste this life. Eight years ago, my dad, the man who led me to Christ, who showed me what it meant to be a disciple of Christ, he passed away unexpectedly. And in God's kindness to me, I was able, miraculously, really, to be in the room when he drew his final breath. And as he was just moments away from his faith becoming sight, he was unconscious and, and laying there in that hospital room, there were no regrets no, no second-guessing if it had been worth it. No, no disappointment about all the holidays we'd missed, all the meals we'd missed, all the special moments, the laughter that we had missed over the years because I was 6,000 miles away in a village in Africa with his grandkids. No, in that room, even with, with tears streaming down my face, I was able to say to him as my last words to him on earth with a confident joy, thank you. Thank you for teaching me that the time to sit down and enjoy a meal with family is not now, but rather it is at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I said to him, I will see you there as we gather with brothers and sisters from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and together we feast. And in one voice we rejoice that we gave our lives to the only thing that truly matters. Don't waste this life. Don't miss this opportunity to join in this task because Listen, with or without you, God's kingdom is marching forward. Despite what it probably feels like to you, Christianity is not dying. It is not fading. It is not shrinking back. Globally speaking, the gospel is exploding faster than ever. And you might be surprised at where it's growing the fastest. It isn't in places that are safe or easy, but rather in places that are often hostile and violent towards the gospel, where following Christ costs you dearly. And yet it's in those places that the gospel is exploding with growth. Because there you have men and women who have learned to count everything a loss compared to knowing Christ. Because their hope, it isn't in the here and now. It is in a future glory that is certain. The kingdom of God, it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? If you're like me, I think so naturally we just assume safety is always better than danger, right? That's that's the way I think. Comforts, better than pain, security, it's better than risk, health, it's better than sickness, life, better than death, freedom, better than imprisonment. But in the upside-down nature of the kingdom, the things that I think we would so naturally despise and be tempted to resist and reject, those are so often the very tools God uses to build his church and to advance his kingdom, a kingdom that grows in mysterious ways, a kingdom that, that grows so often through pain, through loss, through suffering, through persecution. It's a kingdom that sometimes grows when a a handful of men, even while they're mocked and ridiculed, bury the dead wife of their brother in Christ. God is committed to his mission, and it will 
be accomplished. Oh, what, a, what a joy. What a joy it is to align our lives with that. But it's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to get focused right here, get caught up in what's right in front of you, to, to spend all your time and your energy and your resources on what the Bible calls a breath, a vapor, a, a mist. That's what our, our lives are according to God's word. Like how foolish would it be then to, to cling to that, to, to cherish and live for that, for things that, that will not matter 100 years from now? What if instead of that, what if we gave ourselves wholeheartedly you used our resources wholeheartedly to invest in things that won't just matter in 100 years from now, but will matter 10,000 years from now. Because when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, like in that moment, uh, along with people from every one of those 7,398 people groups currently living in darkness, we will have no less days to sing his praise than the moment we'd first begun. Might we give ourselves fully to that? The mission of God, the missionary task, it's for his glory, it's through his church, it's to all peoples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we were born in a, in a place and in a time where we might hear the gospel often. We thank you for faithful men and women who prayed for us, who shared with us. We thank you for your spirit giving us faith to believe. And Lord, we pray that we would be good stewards of the same message that saved us, that we would You've entrusted to us that we would take it to those both near and far who've never heard. For your glory and for their good. May it be so in Christ's name.